Welcome, everybody, to This Podcast Has Autism. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. My name's Marcy. I'm one of the hosts of the show. I'm with my husband, Bran. Today, we're talking about fetal alcohol syndrome. Fetal alcohol syndrome is a condition in a child that results from alcohol exposure during the mother's pregnancy. Fetal alcohol syndrome causes brain damage and growth problems. The problems caused by fetal alcohol syndrome can vary from child to child, but defects caused by fetal alcohol syndrome are not reversible, and they also require a medical diagnosis. And with that, let's move on to the interview. Hey, everybody. Uh, today we have AK with us. She's an occupational therapist, and uh, let's get started. When we were first diagnosed with autism? I was diagnosed the month I turned 40. It was in um, and yeah, well, I guess I'll have to, um, yeah, the diagnosis, it came after I broke down completely. I had a complete nervous breakdown, um, which in retrospect is autistic burnout. I thought it was a depression and it was diagnosed as work-related stress. Um, and people around me had suggested that I was autistic for years. Um, and I was the last to know. I was the last to consider that that could even be a possibility. Um, my I kept having health crisis after health crisis and mental health crisis after mental health crisis. And my general practitioner finally looked at the patterns and said, and she knew me really well because obviously I saw her a lot. And she said that she suspected autism and she sent me to a female psychiatrist who specialized in diagnosing autism in women. And she diagnosed me, um, I mean, it was pretty extensive testing, but she diagnosed me, she said it was crystal clear because I was basically poster child for autism in women. Um, and one of the reasons it took so long to get a diagnosis is because I functioned as well as I did. No matter how sick I was, I kept and this is physical illnesses as well, and depressions, um, I kept functioning. I, I was like a bulldozer. I just uh, kept going and going and going and not listening to my body, not, I guess in a way I was gaslighting myself. Um, I would call it internalized ableism now. And my husband, he had said for years, I think over 12 years, he had said, you're autistic. He, he said, you're an Aspie. You're clearly an Aspie. Um, because in uh, Denmark, uh, we still use Asperger's as a diagnosis. Um, it's under the autism spectrum, um, but it's still its own diagnosis. I think that's changing or will change within the next few years. Um, but I sometimes I use autism, sometimes I use Asperger's uh, to describe it. So our two children, two of our, two of our three children have the same diagnosis, Asperger's, and I kept, I was able to support them very well because 
I knew exactly how they felt. Their struggles, they mirrored my struggles when I was in school. And at one point, I asked myself, why do I understand them so well? And then my husband kept saying, it's because you're just like them, and there's a reason for that. And then I finally thought, oh, maybe I have the same thing they do. And what stopped me from thinking that I could be autistic was I'm extremely empathetic. I've got super high empathy. And there's that myth that autistics lack empathy. And, uh, I mean, that's one of the diagnostic criteria, uh, that lack of empathy. I mean, uh, Simon Baron Cohen, the autism researcher, he wrote about extreme male brain theory and lack of empathy and lack of theory of mind, and none of those apply to me. And I think that that's done a lot of damage. Um, I know it, it did me a lot of damage not to be able to identify myself because I that those aspects didn't apply. Uh, but thankfully, we're moving away from that. And reading accounts written by autistic women helped me see myself. Um, and my bosses had also identified my autism before I did. My colleagues, too, other occupational therapists and psychologists. Um, my first boss, when I was a hospital pediatric occupational therapist, she, at a performance review, she told me, you know what, your Asperger's is an advantage in this job. It works really well. You're so good at focusing on the details and you see things that other people miss. And you're so focused when you're interested. So, you know, your contribution to our research has been very valuable. And I said, wait a minute, I, I, I don't have Asperger's. What are you talking about? And she said, well, honey, you do. Trust me, you do. Um, so, I mean, I had been diagnosed with ADHD and OCD and chronic recurrent depressions and anxiety, social anxiety, phobias. Um, and in retrospect, they were all related to my autism. Um, all those episodes of depression, I think, started out as autistic burnout. And the phobias were related to my sensory difficulties. Things just felt too intense, so I would avoid them. And the social anxiety, I was never so much worried about what people thought of me. I just didn't want to be around that many people. Um, and that was, I mean, I liked my own company better. So all of that was a lot more related to my autism than anything else. And the anxiety, too, just always being on high alert, always seeing the dangers. Um, so when I got the diagnosis, I looked at my life through the lens of autism and everything clicked into place. Everything made sense. And my daughter, she commented the other day, she said, Mom, since you got your diagnosis, you've been a lot healthier. You don't get sick as much and you don't stay in your room as much. And she pointed out that it's because I don't push myself as hard. So I respect my neurology now. I understand why I break down. Um, I, I used to push myself so hard because I, I considered myself, I had a public persona of being high achieving and high functioning. And I would always say, but I'm high functioning, but I'm high functioning. And that, I mean, I high functioned myself into the ground. Like I was a bulldozer. My 
and that's how I learned that functioning labels are definitely not something you want to use because it took so much effort for me. My colleagues saw it. They said, look, yeah, sure, you function, but what comes to us naturally and we don't have to spend any effort on, you spend enormous amounts of effort on. Um, just being here every day and saying hi and you know putting on your mask, that takes a lot of energy. So they saw it before I did. Um, but once I saw it, I was angry at myself for not having recognized it. Um, and then I completely embraced my identity as an autistic and it's made all the difference to my mental health. And that's one of the reasons why I work as an occupational therapist with autistic kids, because I want to, I don't want them to go through what I did. I want them to embrace their identity, accept it and happy autistics instead of miserable neurotypical wannabes so I guess that's my long answer to being diagnosed with autism oh, so what's it like being an autistic occupational therapist well there's a I guess I've always been an autistic occupational therapist um so for me, it's the difference between knowing I'm autistic and being openly autistic and not being fully aware of being autistic. Um, like, like, like I said before, my colleagues saw how hard I had to work to cope. They saw brilliant results, but they also saw how much it cost me. And after my diagnosis, I made a choice to be upfront about my autism from the get-go. And I disclosed, and I respect my neurology completely. I do not put myself in situations that are beyond what I can cope with anymore. Um, I guess it was internalized ableism that made me say, well, I can do it. They can do it. I can do it. I should be able to do it. Now I say, okay, this is beyond my neuro neurological capacity, so... I'm going to set a boundary here. Um, my previous employer, where I had my autistic, uh, I mean, I had a series of meltdowns at work, and then I burned out completely. When I was ready to start gradually returning to work, I asked for autism-specific accommodations, and they refused, which is ironic because I worked for an office that was supposed to help disabled people keep their jobs or get jobs and when they were faced with an employee disabled by autism they refused to make the necessary accommodations which are quite simple really um, so my my union went to bat for me and I ended up having a settlement because what they did was illegal so then I had to send job applications because I entered the unemployment system and in every single job application I wrote that I'm autistic and I wrote what it means in terms of advantages and disadvantages and accommodation needs and what how I can contribute um, as an autistic surprisingly I was I mean I was expecting people to never call me for an interview but I had a pretty good rate I had about a 15% callback rate 
for interviews. And at the interviews, I chose not to mask. I chose to present myself as I was 100%. Um, and one uh, interviewer, I mean, all it takes is one interview, really, hired me because I'm autistic. So um, I guess for me, being an autistic occupational therapist is being true to myself and setting my limits so that I can use my strengths, especially to help other autistics. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Um, do you like your job? Yeah, I do. I. Uh, it's kind of funny because I've pretty much always liked my jobs. I've always found the positive factor in my job. I mean, which probably wasn't so good because that meant I ignored a lot of the negatives because I pushed myself so hard to focus on the positive. I called it the tyranny of positive thinking. Um, and I liked my job before until I became overwhelmed and I disagreed with the ableist agenda. Um, and I had management who openly discriminated against me once they found out I was autistic, even though my performance was great. Um, the job I have now is perfect. It started out as a part-time job, um, temporary part-time job in November. And by May, they said they wanted to keep me forever. <laughs> and in June, I got hired and I'll start full-time on a permanent contract in August. And by full-time, in, in Denmark, full-time is between 30 and 37 hours a week. And I said, I'll take 33 hours, no more. And I get Fridays off because I need that time to, you know, for restitution. Yeah. And they were really good with that. And my job is uh, as a school occupational therapist working with autistic students. Um, they're autistic students with uh, either no cognitive disability, no intellectual disability, or uh, very mild intellectual disability. Um, most of the students I work with are actually quite gifted intellectually. Um, so they in addition to being autistic, they are quite brilliant, and they just don't fit in in the regular classroom, so they need a special classroom. Um, like it's a special section of a regular school um, where there are three to four adults for every four to eight students, and there are five classes, and they're divided by age. Um, and all the staff is informed about how to deal with autistics because they work with autistics and they deal with me the same way they deal with these students so they know not to push me to be you know to join them for lunch if I don't want to um, they know to dim the lights they know to you know keep things pretty quiet let me do my thing um, and the kids I work with are they are so amazing and so I I have the perfect job I get to follow what they're interested in and help them discover their strengths, help them discover 
you know, that autism is an important part of their identity and it's not something to be hidden away or not something to be ashamed of. And I help teach them to advocate for themselves and for each other. So it's, uh, and it's a job I designed. So, I mean, I, I created how I do my job and what I do, which is really good because I'm the kind of person that really doesn't work well with being told what to do and how to do it. So, yeah, I get to do art every day and I get to do, uh, well, we do literature and play chess and we cook together or well, prepare food together. We haven't gotten to cooking yet. And we just talk about what's on our minds. And I mean, these kids, they told me, you're like us. You're one of our tribe. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this job. Do you mainly work with children and what ages? Yeah, now I mainly work with children. They're school children, so they're between ages 6 and 17. Um, however, I also work with uh, adults in the sense that I work with the staff. I do staff training. I, I, uh, it's staff supervision, so I observe and I give feedback. And I'm also available for whatever questions they may have about how to approach autistic kids. And I also present workshops. Um, and I work with the parents of these kids. Um, most of my work is with the kids, but I also need to work with the parents to help them understand how to make the environment as supportive as possible for their kids. And often I have to work with changing attitudes. Um, as an occupational therapist, you can work on the person, you know, the, your patient or client, um, but you can also work on the environment, on modifying the environment. That can be with assistive technology, or with uh, something as simple as changing lighting. And what I think is the most important thing is changing attitudes and perceptions of the people around the autistic kid. So helping parents understand that pushing their kid to be, you know, quote unquote normal is not the way to go. It's a way of pushing them towards burnout. Um, so, yeah, I guess that answers your question. I used to work with kids from birth to, when I worked at the hospital, I worked with children from, you know, the moment of birth. Um, and I've also worked with adults. That was for two and a half years, and that's the job that led to burnout. So I decided I am never working 100% with adults again. My focus is, uh, you know, working with kids. I used to be a teacher before I was an occupational therapist. Um, I guess I, I don't know if it's being autistic, but I often feel like I am my inner child and I relate a lot better to kids because they're not jaded yet and they're more prone to flights of fancy and we can talk a lot more about how things could be instead of focusing on, well, we can't do that because that's how things are or, you know, this is the real world, get used to it. Um, we work on one of the advantages of working with kids is that, you know, 
we're creating the real world and they understand that they understand that you know they can change the way things are how did you get your job being artistic well I've always had I guess maybe it's unusual because there are very high unemployment rates among autistics or underemployment rates um, but I've always had an easy time finding employment because, um, well, I have high cognitive ability, um, and that's, I, I guess I call it cognitive privilege, and I've had educational privilege as well, um, and I'm also, I'm just really good at what I do, so my, my results speak for themselves, and I'm a writer. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm hyperlexic, so I'm a voracious reader. I've been reading since I was three, um, and I'm a really good writer. So I, I used to teach how to write applications and how to interview. So I know how to write great applications and how to interview you well. Now it's an act. What I do is I find out what's required of me, and then I put a lot of effort into writing and saying the right thing. And this approach has landed me jobs, but it's also landed me in trouble because it's landed me jobs that were not good for me. Um, and this job that I have now, I got it because I'm autistic. Um, I wrote on the application, you know, I'm diagnosed with Asperger's and ADHD, and the principal is a visionary. Um, on his wall, he's got this quote by Steve Jobs that says, the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. And I guess that he's one of those people because he saw the potential in having an autistic staff member. I didn't get the job I initially interviewed for. I interviewed for you know, a job of regular school occupational therapist, but I did not meet the physical requirements because I have some physical disability as well. Um, and I also have sensory difficulties. So I'm not able to participate in activities that require any strength. Or, for example, I'm not able to assist the students with toileting because of my sensory issues. I'm, I'm just hypersensitive, um, sense of smell and all that and touch. But the principal, he offered me a different job. He created a position for me because he thought it made sense to have a highly verbal autistic staff member to bridge the communication gap between neurotypical staff and autistic students. And he thought that it would also provide a role model for autistic students of, hey, you know, autistics do get hired and autistics do participate in society. And, you know, I'm married, I have three kids, so, I mean, things haven't always been easy, but I've managed. So he wanted, he thought that I could share my way of coping and my way of seeing things. And that's what I do. Um, and I didn't mask at the interview at all. I, I didn't force myself to make eye contact. I didn't stop myself from stimming. Um, and I didn't say what I knew they wanted to hear. I could have given them the answers that they wanted to hear, but instead I gave them the real answers. Um, for example, 
the principal said, how, what do you think about meetings? How do you do, you know, when you have to have staff meetings? And I said, I think they're ridiculous and often unnecessary and I avoid them. And if I get overwhelmed, I walk out. I, I was completely direct about it. And I said, and don't expect me to be around for lunch and, you know, break time chatter because that takes too much effort. I can do the job and I can talk about the job, everything that's autism and occupational therapy and learning related, but I'm not going to sit and have, you know, chit chat and small talk. That's not going to be the case. I need to be alone. Um, and it didn't scare him away. So I think that, you know, it, it helps when you're not afraid of scaring people away <laughs> and you have the right person with the right attitude. And he told me that he said, well, I'm hiring you and you decide what you do. And he gave me a list of kids he wanted me to work with. Um, and basically what it was they wanted to achieve to, you know, help them with and said, it's up to you how you do it. And I was given 100% free reign. Um, so it, I guess I got my job being autistic because I was open about it. I'm confident in my autistic identity. I'm able to state what my limits are and what my strengths are. And probably the most important factor of all, um, the principal and the people in charge of hiring were open-minded and visionary and they saw the potential in having an autistic occupational therapist work with autistic kids. What are the benefits of being autistic while working with other autistics? Oh, well, I, they're my people. I understand them. I feel comfortable with them. Um, we can relate to each other. We have so many of the same needs, social needs, sensory needs. Um, our minds, I guess, when our minds work in a similar way, we just have an easier time being together. I suppose it's the same way that, you know, neurotypicals like being around other neurotypicals because they just get each other. And that's probably also, you know, what's difficult about, I guess, conflict happens when you mix neurotypicals and autistics and we don't understand each other as well. Um, so, I don't know. I just, I like these kids. They're interesting to talk to I know what to talk to them about and how to talk to them and they know also with me that they can let their guard down um, they don't have to worry about masking as much and I mean I, I've noticed these kids when I've seen them interacting with neurotypical kids I see the communication breakdown happen and when I see them interacting with each other, it flows beautifully for the most part. Um, so I, I, I guess, I don't know, you probably, you probably know Steve Silverman's book, Neurotribes. There's something to be said for that, you know, for belonging to the same neurotribe. Um, we just, I mean, we click. And I know when to back off. They know when to back off. I can relate to their issues. Like I had this one kid saying to me, it was the end of the school year and she's a 14 year old kid. She said, 
what is the protocol for hugging at the end of the school year? And that's the same kind of question I would have, and I do have. And I said, ooh, let me get back to you on that one. Let me figure it out, um, or we'll figure it out together. But, you know, she, she didn't know. You know, she, she was like, do I approach the teacher? If the teacher approaches me, what if I get startled? What if it's too much? Um, what if I hurt somebody's feelings if I say no to a hug? So, you know, and again, we're talking about that myth of the lack of empathy or of not caring about other people's feelings. Um, this 14-year-old girl, she, her diagnosis is also Asperger's. She's so preoccupied with not saying the wrong thing and not hurting other people. Um, and I can relate to all of that. All the overthinking that goes on in her head, everything. And, and she said that, I mean, the, the first few sessions we had together, she went back to her teachers and said, oh my goodness, I have never talked to somebody who knows exactly what it's like in my head. So, uh, the kids, they they feel, I, I don't know, I guess they just feel more comfortable. Um, I mean, there have been some kids that we, we just haven't clicked, and it hasn't worked as well. Um, that's a minority and then we just you know figure out different ways or set them up with different people because just because I'm autistic doesn't mean I'm going to work out well with every autistic there's always you know chemistry between people um then I'll recommend somebody else to work with them um and I've had kids I've had this one kid who was moving on to the next school um school here finishes in ninth grade after that you choose optional 10th grade or high school and at the end of the school year she came to me and she said I don't want to go to the next level now I want to stay with you you're my teacher here and I you know you get me so I don't want to leave you and I think that says a lot because um, I do use I, I use occupational therapy and teaching I use I, uh, these kids are brilliant in English um, so a lot of therapy actually happens in English even though you know they're Danish kids because they're special interest and I hate that expression special interest but it, it's English so we speak English and we read books together study literature written by autistics about autistics uh, like uh, I used the book by Rachel Lucas it's called uh, the state of grace and it's about a 14 year old girl diagnosed with autism and you know life is like for her you know she falls in love and has friends and typical teenage issues and I guess that as an autistic OT I bring this knowledge with me and I, and I expose these kids to this kind of literature that they wouldn't be exposed to otherwise and when they see themselves reflected in literature you know representation it matters because they they identify with it and they don't feel so alone so I mean, in some ways you can say that my area of interest is autism and literature and when they intersect and I can use them in my occupational therapy, it's just, you know, happy, glitter, you know, unicorn sunshine all around. Um, and the kids, they, they feel that they're accepted as they are. They feel that I'm not going to expect something of them that they're not able to do and that I but at the same time I'll you know 
push them when it's reasonable to push them. And they feel that I genuinely like being with them. So, I mean, the benefits of being autistic while working with other autistics are, I mean, there's so many benefits to it. Um, also, in terms of my mental health, I have not had any mental health issues in this job. So, well, that's that's it, really. Okay. Uh how can you help the parents, children, and professionals at school? Well, I've already uh, covered some of that, and it's, well, the children, I help them to understand themselves and to develop a positive autistic identity and to learn how to advocate for themselves and for each other, um, to learn how to set very firm boundaries and how to say no. It's so important. Um, like I said, I combine teaching English and literature and art with occupational therapy. It's not traditional, but it works. And one of the things I do is I work with making the kids understand that it's okay to say no. Because a lot of these kids, they have been in compliance therapies, like uh, Applied Behavioral Analysis, ABA, and they're, they've been pretty traumatized by it. And they're so vulnerable if they're in a position where they feel they can't say no. So in my classroom, it is not only allowed, but encouraged to say no. Um, for example, sometimes we do art activities. And there was this one boy, a uh, 12-year-old boy, and a really, really sweet, sensitive um, kid. And I said to him, all right, I need you to uh, help with the cleanup. You're going to wash the containers and the paintbrushes and he said no I'm tired I've used all my energy doing this activity I don't have any energy left and I said so you're not going to help with the cleanup and he said no I really don't want to I can't and I said you're sure about that nothing I say can you know help you even if I say that it would help me he said no and that, and then I said good for you I am so proud of you because you said no and he gave me a funny look and then he smiled and he's like, you know, you're the only teacher who ever says that. So, uh, and then after a while I asked him, do you, are you worried that I might be upset at you for you refusing to help with the cleanup? And he said, mm, a little bit. And then I said, you think I'm upset with you or annoyed with you? And he said, no, I don't think so. And then another student who's highly empathetic she said oh yes she is she's annoyed with you she's irritated I can feel it and he looked at me with his eyes wide and I said you know what she's right I am annoyed and I am irritated but those feelings are mine and they're my problem they're not your problem but and I'm proud of you so my being proud of you saying no is much, much stronger than my feeling of annoyance or irritation that you said no. Um, so that's a way I help the kids. Um, if they don't want to read out loud, I say fine. If we have a food prep activity, and I've got some kids that say, I don't want to help with the food prep, but I'm ready to eat, and they, you know, they can explain why. I, I mean, I help them explain why and so they can understand it. Um, I say fine. 
you know, I, I'm not going to keep them out of an activity just because they don't have the energy to participate in part of it. If they don't have the energy to participate in cooking, fine, they'll have the energy to participate in eating. And um, it worked out really well. So a, a lot of what I do with the kids is, oh, just helping them lower their stress level and lower their anxiety level, helping them feel safe um, and safe to say no. Um, and I, again, I help the parents to understand that once upon a time, I was just like their kids. So, you know, when they see me now and the things I can do now, um, it wasn't always the case. So they can see that, you know, their kids will develop, um, not necessarily in the exact same way, but in their own way. And I help the parents understand that um, they don't need to push their kids to be on a certain timeline, that they have their own time and their own space, and they'll get there when they get there. What they need is understanding and acceptance as they are. And uh, I help them understand that they need downtime and also how to accept when their child says no and know when to push a little bit. But again, the key is push a little bit and provide the firm boundaries that kids need, you know, knowing that the parents are in charge because sometimes parents can take it overboard and let the kid decide everything, but that doesn't help. You know, they still need to know that the parent is in charge to keep, you know, and will keep them safe. Um, I help the professionals understand the kids because I, I kind of translate from, you know, the autistic world to the neurotypical world when the kids haven't learned how to do it themselves. Um, I had this one kid, a 15-year-old, who was also going to stop at school and move to the next level of education. And he had been very upset the past, you know, the last three weeks of school, and he kept getting angrier and angrier and regressed in many ways. And he wouldn't talk about it, which is understandable. He didn't have the words to talk about it. And he started uh, drawing and writing on his desk and writing swear words and drawing, you know, just really, really angry scribbles and that. And so they didn't know what to do with him. And I said, well, he's obviously got a need to express. So I said, don't stop him from drawing. You can always wash the desks. He's letting out these you know, these big feelings that he has no name for. And so they sent me to talk to him and he didn't want to talk to me. So I didn't make him, but, but uh, I said, you know, we're here. Do you need to go home or do you prefer to be here? Because it looks like you're having a hard time. And he said, you know, I want to be here. And I said, fine. Do you want to be left alone? Yes. I said, fine. And then I saw that on the corner of his desk, he had written goodbye. And that tipped me off that, okay, he's upset because there's a transition coming. So what I did is I told the teacher, I said, let's give him more pencils, give him a choice of colors, and offer him paper. So he said no to the paper, but he took the, you know, the pencils and started using different colors. And so he was able to work out his feelings that way. Now, the traditional approach would be, you know, how do we get this kid to stop scribbling on his desk? When you've got an autistic occupational therapist, you, you know, you learn that, well, this behavior has a function and it's actually helping this kid. So how do we make 
it more comfortable for him to continue to engage in this behavior that's not hurting anybody, but is helping him. So I guess I help professionals. I, I, I guess I come up with the solutions that are out of left field and, and they work. So that's my answer to that question. Do you have certain therapies you start with first? Well, occupational therapy is very broad. Um, occupational therapy is basically about how to facilitate participation in activities, in meaningful activities of daily living. And these meaningful activities can be, you know, going to school, going to work, um, functioning at work, at, at home, you know, cooking, being part of a family, uh, taking public transportation, or, you know, doing grocery shopping, self-care, like, uh, you know, knowing when to use deodorant or, you know, taking a shower or establishing a routine. Um, and what I focus on is I focus on what brings joy and what reduces stress and anxiety. So the first thing I do is I find out what is this kid interested in? What What is it that makes this particular kid happy? And again, in the case of autism, you call them special interests. I call them intense interests or passions, and that's what I go for. And um, in other therapies, like, for example, ABA, they use these against the kids. They're like, oh, well, you like uh, horses. Let's take all things related to horses away from you until you learn how to do this and this and that. And that just traumatizes the kid because they lose their safety. What I do is I'm like, oh, you like horses. Okay, well, do you like to draw horses? Do you like to ride horses? Do you like to look at horses? Talk about horses. Let's figure out how to get you to do more of that that you like. And that's how the kids open up and become more confident. And um, that's how we build trust. Uh, I had some kids that were really into oh, different computer games like Roblox and they would play these Roblox games and I said, did you know you can make your own Roblox? Um, uh, what do you call it? Like, uh, I'm not sure what you call it in English. Field or... Oh, their own Roblox game. And they didn't know. Nobody had told them. I said, oh, no, 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 no. You can make your own. So I got them into coding. The kids that were interested in it and then they thrived with it because they were like, oh my gosh, I I can make my own and other people can play it and I can learn something with this. Um, another kid was really good at math and very interested in math. And in addition to autism, he's got ADHD and teachers thought that he could only focus 15 minutes at a time. Well, I started working with him on math and he focused beautifully for it. He hyper-focused on it, so he finished all the math that he had to do for the school year in a matter of a few weeks. And then he said, I want to do poetry. And I was like, wait, we're supposed to be doing math. He said, no, 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 no. I'm interested in poetry, and it's got to be in English. So I brought Shel Silverstein, funny poetry, and we did that for a while. And then he said, I want to play chess. Now, I never learned how to play chess because I never had the attention span for it. 
So this kid taught me to play chess and he felt really good about it because he was the first person out of many who succeeded in teaching me to play chess and he was the expert and he beat me brutally and he asked me to take pictures of you know my absolute brutal losses so all these things build confidence and they i mean it, it helps them discover what they're good at and like this kid was really good at teaching and really good at strategizing and you know seeing things you know three four five six steps ahead so then the real problem with him was he needed to learn how to get organized we used all of that we used the fact that he zoomed through math that he you know showed an interest in poetry and that he you know his ability in chess to find out how it connected to being able to organize schoolwork and it all clicked for him he's like that's right it does so um, the therapies I start with first are finding what the kid likes and using that to build their skill set and build their confidence um, another kid loved art so we did art with her it was all art all the time and she got to the point she used to be a perfectionist terrified of making mistakes so I chose uh, flow painting where you really can't screw up and she started to let go and experiment more and by the end of the school year she was setting everything up herself doing the whole process and feeling more confident um, another kid at 16 brilliant brilliant kid she had not learned how to read or write because she was dyslexic um, and teachers had had the really wrong approach um, she's brilliant at English so what we did what I did with her is I said well why don't we didn't work in Danish let's work on it in English so she started learning to read in English and we started working on writing um, I explained how brain science works and why she needs to read the same thing over and over again once she understood that she was really happy to do it because it has to make sense you know when you're autistic things have to really make sense you have to know why you're doing something and um, she started learning uh, we call it cursive writing because I showed her some research that showed that learning cursive can help dyslexics learn to read so we decided to test it so the, the therapies are completely tailored to what the kid and I don't work as much on the things the kid is bad at because, you know, at, at one point you have to know when to say when. If you've got a kid who's brilliant at art and terrible at English, you're not going to push the English. You're going to push the art because it's about building the kids up. Um, and I definitely include a lot of sensory integration therapy. Um, and that's because one of the biggest problems when you're autistic, the, what I would say is the real, real huge problem is our sensory integration issues when we're, you know, when the world's just too much. Um, so I work on having kids understand their sensory profile. You know, sometimes they're hyposensitive and they need a lot of input. And sometimes they're hypersensitive and they don't need as much. So... You know, I help them understand that they're okay the way they are, 
and that, you know, if they, for example, dim the lights in the classroom, they can be there longer, or if they want to be able to relax and they respond well to deep pressure, then we have, we actually have a little contraption that where they can crawl through it and it provides deep pressure. So the most important therapy would be that if we're talking about traditional occupational therapy, it would be sensory integration therapy. And then again, self-advocacy. So that's my answer to that question. Can every uh, autistic benefit from OT? Yeah, definitely. But maybe I'm biased because I'm an occupational therapist. But OT is about you know, helping you function in your life. OT should be client-centered. So it should be, you know, the client or the patient that sets the goals and decides this is what's important to me and this is what I need help with to figure out so that I can live my best life. Um, now, what's important is that it's occupational therapy that's focused on acceptance and on modifying the environment, um, which, like I said before, includes the social environment, like the attitudes of those who are close to the autistic would be the most important one. And then, so, so the occupational therapy that will benefit autistics has to be autism informed and it has to be trauma informed because autistics have a high rate of trauma. Um, the kids, I've got kids who have been traumatized by going to school. Uh, and I have to have that, I, I have to be aware of that every time I work with them. And it also is very important that it not be normalizing occupational therapy. Like uh, the, the, a lot of, I know in the US and also in Denmark, uh, there's a lot of IEP goals where the goal is to um, make the child indistinguishable from their peers. That's no, I, I don't do that. My goal is not to make the kid, you know, quote unquote, normal or just like everybody else. The goal is to make them, you know, comfortable in their own skin and be able to stand up for themselves and be able to, you know, not think that they're less because they're different. So it's got to be occupational therapy that is completely client-centered and you know without an agenda of well let's get rid of the autism because you're not going to do that it's more let's figure out how we can help you know you live in your world as an autistic person how we can help you respect your boundaries and how we can help those around you respect your boundaries that's that's it is ot only for children Oh no, OT is across the lifespan. It's from birth to death, uh, because again, it's you know the focus is on activities of daily living and meaningful activity and participation. So OT is across the lifespan. In anytime you have a situation where you're having difficulty with your daily life and what you need to do in your daily life and it could be because you're born with a disability or you become disabled or you're 
temporarily sick, um, whether it be psychiatric illness or something like uh, fibromyalgia or arthritis. Um, occupational therapy helps you figure out how you can continue living your life with the issues you have. Do you personally use occupational therapy for yourself? Yes, I do. Um, I guess I've, I have consulted occupational therapists and I also use my occupational therapy knowledge for myself. Um, for example, in terms of budgeting my energy. Um, I have a certain amount of energy and I have to decide how I'm going to use it and I have to accept that it's not as much energy as you know your average person and not as much energy as I would like to have so I have to know how to plan my life I have to know okay how much can I socialize how much time do I need to recover after I socialize um, and also as far as assistive devices are concerned because I also have arthritis issues fibromyalgia issues so uh, I can have, you know, kitchen gadgets that have, a, you know, a better grip, or I can learn different ways of using my body so I put as little strain on it as possible. Um, I had, uh, what is it, five years ago, I had a mastectomy, and I had to, I needed to recover it from that my arm was barely working my left arm was barely working my chest muscles were tight and so what I did is I thought okay use a meaningful activity so I learned how to play cello because it got my arm in the right position and it you know the cello against my chest reverberated um, in a way that you know gave the muscles some input that they needed and the nerves some input that they needed and it was just my way of using a meaningful activity to get better. When I was, uh, when I had my depressive episodes and my burnout episodes, I used art. So I started painting furniture, you know, using chalk paint and redesigning and refurbishing. And then I started also doing flow painting. Um, so I find these activities that I know can help me, um, come back to wholeness I, I, I use music as well I guess it's, it's kind of a stim I'll sit at the piano and play the same thing for hours because that's what helps um, so and I also have to know when to say stop so for example I know when to delegate my kids do a lot of housework so which is good for them because they have skills they need but it also helps me because I know what I can and can't do and uh, that's that's part of occupational therapy. It's you know how to get the people around you to help you because you know independence is not realistic for anybody, even people who are not autistic and people who are healthy. We are interdependent people. So knowing when to ask for help, how to ask for help, who to ask for help, and how much help to ask for, that's a skill that you can develop with occupational therapy. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we close? Um, well, I 
be, I, I think maybe sometimes I worry that people who either read what I write or hear what I say can say, oh, no, she's not autistic. There's no way she's autistic. Um, and I often find myself having to justify because I, you know, I, I present the capable part and I don't present as much the part that struggles. And there's this narrative about autism that it's all about the struggle. And yes, we do have struggles. Um, I mean, I have meltdowns. I have burnout. I have times when I go nonverbal where, I mean, you wouldn't think it right now because I can speak a lot, but sometimes I completely lose the ability to speak. Um, when I'm in a very stressful situation, the words will not come out. I can write them. Um, and I guess the other thing is that that's what's so wrong about functioning levels because, you know, you can have somebody that has always been seen as high functioning when in reality, I have a lot of support needs. Um, my husband is my most important support person. It's ironic. I work with kids on teaching, um, for example, food preparation, and I struggle with it so much that my husband takes care of the cooking. For me, it takes all my energy to, and I, it's like I don't have the executive function for all these practical things. And, um, also figuring out what to say to people, when to talk to people, uh, going to a party. I mean, all these things are difficult for me. So, and, and I, I guess I, I use this in my work because I guess I find a way around them. Um, and then there's the good things about my autism is uh, I, I've got my hyper empathy and a very strong sense of justice and uh, advocating for those who need advocacy and an incredible attention to detail and memory for the things that interest me, um, ability to hyper focus. And I guess as, as a worker, I'm no nonsense. I, I get the job done, period. So often at the expense of the social stuff, but you know, I've made it clear now that the social stuff is not where I'm going to put my energy. That doesn't mean I don't like the people I work with, and it doesn't mean I won't cooperate. It just means that, you know, I've embraced who I am as an autistic, and I've embraced my need to create boundaries, and I've stopped thinking that I have to turn myself into a neurotypical and that I have to let the neurotypical standards of success define what I'm doing and define me. So I guess that's it. Well, thank you for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for um, interviewing me. That's it for this episode. Until next time.